Hello, welcome to a special July 4th, Independence Day edition of Catholic Lives. If you're listening to this, by the way, somewhere outside of the United States, July 4th is the Independence Day of the United States. So, this special episode has to do with the one and only Catholic signer of the American Declaration of Independence from the British Colonies in 1776. And this was Charles Carroll of Carrollton, our Catholic life for this week. Who was Charles Carroll? Well, he was uh, born uh, in Annapolis in the colony of Maryland in 1737. Uh, son uh, of, um, uh, of the wealthiest family in colonial Maryland, a very prominent family. Um, his uh, grandfather Charles had actually emigrated to the colonies from England, from uh, Ireland in the 17th century in order to escape religious discrimination in, uh, in, in uh, the British Isles because, and he did this in 1689, because in 1688 there was a revolution in England and this, over, this um, revolution, if you don't know, got rid of the Catholic James II, excluded Catholics from the throne, and sort of enshrined in the English law disabilities and discrimination against Catholics. And this had, by the way, even had the same effect in Maryland, because if you don't know, the colony of Maryland was actually founded in 1632 by a Catholic nobleman named Lord Baltimore uh, as a, a haven for Catholics in England at the time. And they had had religious toleration there. Catholics had been more or less, you know, prominent members of the government and society in early colonial Maryland. But with the revolution of 1688, um, Protestant landholders took over the colony of Maryland and they overturned um, religious toleration. They banned, they rejected freedom of worship for Catholics and uh, also instantiated some other um, legal disabilities we'll discuss in a second for Catholics in Maryland. And so when Charles was 10 years old, he had to be educated in secret at a Jesuit school on the eastern shore of Maryland um, near the coast, um, along, by the way, with his cousin, John Carroll, who was the future first bishop of the United States after the American Revolution. Later on, he was sent to St. Omer's in Flanders, in French-held Flanders, it would be Belgium today, uh, to continue his studies um, in, uh, in Europe, and then went on a grand tour, um, also taking instruction, taking uh, coursework uh, in Paris, Bourges, and then studying law in London uh, in, uh, in his time. He spent 16 years, actually, on the continent. Uh, even though, by the way, he could not practice law as a Catholic in Maryland. It's one of the things you couldn't do. You couldn't practice law, couldn't hold public office. Uh, and so he comes back uh, to Maryland in 1765, polished, articulate, very well educated. And in fact, he's sort of given um, his uh, entree into uh, his family's uh, fortunes by his father, who gives him a 10,000-acre tract of land in Fredericks County, Maryland, um, which he comes to call Carrollton, uh, and the reason being that um, even though he never lived there, he called, uh, when he'd write letters and, and things of that nature, he would add the word Carrollton to his signature to distinguish himself from all the other Carrolls, actually a bunch of Charles Carrolls in his family. That's why we call him Charles Carroll of Carrollton. Three years later, he married Mary Darnell, his cousin in 1768, with whom he had seven children. And in fact, his home, uh, the Carroll House, as it's called today, 
uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, was would become the site for the official state celebration, both of the peace and the formal uh, recognition of um, United States independence following the American Revolution. So it became a, a major, major place later on. However, he didn't enter public life uh, until 1773. If you recall, going back, there's uh, lots of turmoil after the Seven Years' War, in which the English kick, the British kick the French out of North America, because the British want to tax the colonies to pay for the war, basically. And so from 1765 onward, there's big debates about the colonies and uh, the rights of the colonists, and can Parliament tax them? This is the Stamp Act. This is no taxation without representation. But for but he doesn't become involved till 1773. This is after the Boston Tea Party, after the Boston Massacre, 1770, 1773, when Carrollton, excuse me, Carroll involves himself in a pamphlet debate with um, another um, supporter of the sort of state establishment in, in Maryland, the colonial establishment, the British establishment. Um, over the established church, the established church by that I mean the Church of England, which was the legally established church in. The colonies. You had established churches. In fact, you even had established churches, state-established churches. By state-established, we mean either protected by law, supported by state taxation, or something that something of that nature. Um, in most of the colonies, uh, save for one or two, and even many of the states, even after the revolution, still had them for several decades, until they eventually disappeared and were done away with that law. But this is what he got in this pamphlet debate with this other person. Um, in which he emerged as a popular figure for arguing in favor of freedom of conscience, religious toleration, uh, but also uh, for the rights of the elected assembly. He identifies the people as the fount of, ultimately, um, law in uh, colonial Maryland. And for this defense of colonial rights, he becomes basically a public figure for the first time once he's identified. They, they, get, they see through these you know, uh, pseudonyms they use in these debates. And on that basis was sent uh, with a delegation of men to negotiate with, uh, with essentially with Canada, trying to get the Canadians on uh, the U.S. the North American colony side in this dispute with Britain. It didn't work, but all of this brought him to wider public notice. He became a public figure across the colonies by 1774. Uh, and that year, uh, he was also elected to the Second Maryland Convention. And by convention, you had. Um, Colonies at that point trying to throw off the royal charters and you know form their own government. And this is what this was, which his election to that convention effectively ended the ban on Catholics in political office in Maryland. Um, two years later, he's elected to the Mar Mar Maryland legislature in 1776, and then sent as a delegate to the Second Continental Congress. You know what the Continental Congress was. There was a first one which meant to respond to all of these. Um, to all these actions of the British, you know, closing down the port of Boston, quartering troops there, stuff like this. He sent to the second one, where, on July 2nd, 1776, uh, he becomes one of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was later on appointed to another convention to write the new Maryland Constitution, and elected to the, to the first uh, Maryland Senate in 1776, where he would serve continuously uh, until 1800. Uh, the next year, 1777, he was appointed delegate to Congress again, and in 1783, he was elected president of the, of the uh, Maryland Senate. After the war itself, in 1789, he became one of Maryland's first senators in the United States Senate, although he resigned in 1792 
uh, when the Constitution was uh, amended to uh, forbid the simultaneous uh, holding of state and national offices. And so he remained in the Maryland legislature until 1800, when he uh, retired um, from public life. And in his retirement, he stayed very busy, more or less, with business, with his private affairs of building up the family fortunes. Uh, he remained a lifelong Federalist. If you don't know what Federalism is, he was that um, early party that emerged out of the founding of the Republic in the 1790s, who, like Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, favored a strong central government, favored um, things like a national bank, um, uh, in opposition to people like Thomas Jefferson, who was a Republican, uh, not in the modern sense, well, in some ways in the modern sense, but uh, who favored a more decentralized state, among other things, uh, and were suspicious of, you know, things like the national bank. And, in fact, he became uh, a founder of several different major companies, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal Company, which have canals, you know, up and down um, um, those uh, areas of the country. Uh, he invested in the Bank of Maryland, the Bank of Baltimore, as well as the first and second banks of the United States. So he was in, uh, involved in creating those you know, national institutions of public life like a Federalist would. Uh, and finally, he also helped found the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad System in uh, 1830, toward the end of his life. At ni age 91, by the way, he was active uh, well into his, uh, his 90s. One thing I do have to address about, uh, about uh, Charles Carroll in this day and age his family was a family of slaveholders. Um, they owned, I think, by the time the revolution was over, somewhere between four and 500 slaves. I think at one point they may have been, as a whole, the largest slave-owning family in the entire colonies. Now, Charles Carroll did, like a lot of the founders, admit the iniquity uh, of slavery, but it was so crucial to their family fortunes, most of them just sort of ignored it or didn't quite... Um, didn't, uh, never undertook to free their own slaves. The one act, by the way, he did make toward trying to solve this problem of slavery was to help found the so-called American Colonization Society in 1828. If you don't know what this is, this was a society which both Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, other founders, were involved in to basically free, take freed slaves from the United States and repatriate them back to land in the continent of Africa. This is where, in fact, the nation of Liberia comes from to this day, um, which was founded by resettled Africans, both, both from the United States, but also from um, British Canada as well. There were actually uh, African-Americans from that, uh, that period as well, uh, but mostly freed slaves from the United States. And so he was part of this as well. And so finally, what about his faith? I've mentioned it in political terms. Well, John Adams, uh, second president of the United States, founding father, once called him, quote, a Roman Catholic but an ardent patriot, unquote. And this is something, by the way, this, he wrote this in the heat of the 1770s. This would have been, uh, in the beginning of that conflict with the British and uh, the colonies, this would have seemed perhaps like a contradiction. One, of course, the things that Carroll's known for is his contributions to the revolution, of course, contributed toward the establishment of uh, um, freedom of religion and the Constitution in general, but also demonstrated Catholics could be loyal to the Republic. This is a big deal, if you don't know. In the early modern period in England, there was fear that Catholics would be more loyal to the Pope than to the nation itself. Uh, and so he's important for those reasons. Although, very interestingly, as I kind of hinted earlier, for the most part, the Carols as a family as a whole were a very private group. 
Uh, and this is mostly because, you know, prior to the revolution, because of the legal and social restrictions in colonial Maryland, they would focus most of their activities on building up the wealth of the family estates and the family fortune. Uh, and uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth mentioning again, by the time of the revolution, the Carrolls as a whole were supposed to be the, reputed to be the wealthiest family in the colonies. As for Charles Carroll himself, by all accounts, he was a very devout man, though for the most part, uh, the nature of his faith, you know, specifics of what he believed, his devotional practice, haven't been that much studied by historians. Although, in 1822, uh, he, uh, the first officially legally sanctioned Catholic Church in Annapolis uh, was built on uh, his property, on his, the Carroll House property in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, the parish still exists today, although the building doesn't, but the, the house is still there. You can go visit it if you ever go to Maryland. And so this uh, founder of the New Republic, this revolutionary, this uh, Catholic uh, landowner, um, finally met the end of his life at age, age 95 in 1832. He was the last of the signers of the Declaration of Independence uh, to pass away. And he was supposed to have said just before his death that, quote, I have lived to my 96th year. I have enjoyed continued health. I have been blessed with great wealth, prosperity, and most of the good things which the world can bestow. Public approbation, esteem, applause. But what I now look back on with the greatest satisfaction to myself is that I have practiced the duties of my religion." Unquote. And so, at least, in, at least uh, according to uh, Charles Carroll, he fulfilled his duties as a Catholic and also was successful uh, in his worldly ventures. And by the way, if you heard noise in the background earlier, those are fireworks going off. <laughs> so this is being recorded on July the 4th. So that is our Catholic Life for this week. I hope you enjoyed learning about Charles Carroll of Carrollton. Uh, again, if you uh, like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, leave comments, or anywhere else. Please spread the word about the podcast. Um, I have a wonderful rest of the uh, Independence Day for my United States listeners and uh, a great week for everyone else who's listening. Take care uh, and uh, may the peace of Christ be with you.